Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that puts politics in one hand and comedy in the other and then bangs those hands together in the hope that it will kill both at once. This is episode 103, I'm Tiernan Duyeb and as Ireland voted for repealing the Eighth Amendment in a landslide referendum victory, I say, Ireland, you are unstoppable. Now quick, have a referendum on making your trains less shit, exiling Bono and Flatley and sorting out the weather. I believe in you, you can do this. 66.4% of Ireland voted to legalise abortion, proving that actually, God, she bloody loves her choice. With this in the gay marriage referendum, I wouldn't be surprised if the mega-deity herself is also a big fan of shrimp after all. Despite concerted efforts from no campaigners who reportedly used violent tactics because they're only pro-life until you're old enough for them to kill you, the Irish Catholic Church, who can't be taken seriously with any save-the-children stances, as that's like Harold Shipman having campaigned for help the aged, the Orange Order, because nothing says women's rights like 400 withered home pride men working at the Christmas sale, and evangelical Americans who travelled thousands of miles just to find out that actually, after all, thoughts and prayers really don't mean shit. But the Yes campaign overcame all of that, and Ireland decided that no, they won't be bidding for season three of The Handmaid's Tale to be filmed on their land. Only Donegal had more no's than yeses, but it is known as the Forgotten County, no doubt because it seems time has moved on and not realised it left them all behind somewhere in the 1950s. Now, of course, all eyes are on Northern Ireland, which still has a strict ban on abortion and is increasingly looking like Europe's own large-scale Spanish Inquisition reenactment. DUP leader, Inquisitor-General and Hugh Bonneville's shitty aunt, Arlene Foster, said that the Irish referendum has no impact on the law in Northern Ireland. Sure, apart from the fact that women can now just nip over to Republic to get the treatment they want, which will probably put even more opposition on the idea of a whacking great post-Brexit border being there. Though, to be fair, even scaling that as though it's part of some sort of giant obstacle course would be easier and more comfortable than a Ryanair flight on most days. Foster made it clear that any decision on abortion legislation in Northern Ireland is a devolved matter, which no one could disagree with as it seems hugely devolved, and she said that it's for the Northern Irish Assembly to debate and decide on. Great, except there's not been one of those since March of last year because it seems everyone in Northern Ireland is so anti-choice they'd rather no one lead the country than agree on a decision about it. 
Prime Minister and what if the Joker was much less interesting and made worse speeches, Theresa May, is refusing to go back to a Westminster vote on liberalising Northern Ireland's abortion laws, as she said it would be dangerous for British politicians to tell Northern Irish ones how to vote. Unless, of course, it involves them being paid quite a lot of money to do so. Meanwhile, the DUP have suddenly dropped their opposition to boundary changes, meaning the Conservatives are looking to cut MPs in the Commons from 600 to 650, which will largely affect Labour. Oh, I see. So it's fine for the DUP to reform other people's boundaries, is it? Several Brexiteers have commented on the hypocrisy of how Remainers are happy to support Ireland's referendum result, but not the Brexit one. Which is an odd statement to make, because you can't compare changing history with crawling back through it and then embracing the past in a bear hug that causes it to have breathing issues. Several Brexiteers have commented on the hypocrisy of how Remainers are happy to support Ireland's referendum, but not the Brexit one. Which doesn't make sense, because you can't just compare changing history with crawling back through it and embracing the past in a bear hug that causes it to have breathing issues. In fact, the only thing that links the two referendums is that now Irish women will be able to have the medical care they need in their own country, it's likely they'll give less of a shit about travelling over to Britain, where so many of our doctors and nurses from the EU have left, that the waiting times would probably mean they'd had the baby before being seen anyway. Oh, I see now. No wonder the DUP backed Brexit. Speaking of nonsensical comments about Brexit, Foreign Secretary and love child of a golden retriever in a lipoma, Boris Johnson, has again pressured the Prime Minister about customs union decisions by saying the UK must come fully out of the EU. I'd have thought coming fully out would just mean we make a bigger, even more visible mess. (laughs) Bojo is back from Latin America, where he took pictures with, among others, a sloth, causing the sloth to marvel that it had met the planet's slowest, most useless hairy mammal. And also with a manatee, who no doubt asked security to remove the sea cow it was being harassed by. Thing is, the UK Customs Chief have said the Brexiteers' preferred customs maximum facilitation plan will cost the country £20 billion a year in necessary technology alone, or roughly £380 billion a week. So no, Boris, we can't fully come out of the EU, as it's even more likely the NHS would get any of that money you promised, despite needing support to deal with an entire country in trauma. Boris has also stated that he probably needs a private plane for his travels, something passengers he's had to sit near on commercial flights would no doubt agree with. Nothing shows you're in touch with the people like demanding a plane just as they're informed they'll lose more money. Still, imagine all the bullshit he could write on the side of an RAF Voyager. Meanwhile, Environment Secretary and less friendly piranha Michael Gove has announced plans for more national parks in England, which I guess is so there's more space for fracking, driving pointless expensive train lines through or for him to bury his victims in. Minister for State of Prisons and failed clone of Mick Jagger, Rory Stewart, has said that fewer offenders should be locked up for sentences of 12 months or less and instead they could be used to fill labour shortages left by Brexit. Great! I think no one would make a better nanny than someone whose day trips with your children will probably involve showing them how to scale drain pipes and using their tiny hands to open windows from the outside. Labour leader and hide your pain Harold, Jeremy Corbyn, has announced his party would scrap the Lords and replace with a democratically elected chamber, which is the first time the party under his leadership have backed removing privileges from the elderly and telling them they're no longer fit for work. And lastly, a man from Mali has been granted instant French citizenship by President and European Steve Carell, Emmanuel Macron, because he scaled the outside of a building to save a toddler. And this has no doubt confused the Front National, who are now going to have to tentatively start a campaign to keep French children in danger. Hello, Parpol Brods. Ah, well done for crawling out from under your piles of GDPR emails to be able to listen to this week's show. I swear, I thought I was going to get one saying, we've been hacking your computer without your knowledge for years. Due to GDPR laws, we have a new privacy policy. 
Ugh, so annoying. Um, how amazing, though, that last week's episode went out of date before the week was done for an actually good reason. I mean, I'm usually annoyed when an episode becomes redundant, uh, as it's rarely due to social progression and more likely just because Theresa May has forgotten what she said a week ago or because America has done something really, really stupid again. But no, thankfully, this time it was because Ireland did a good one, actually supported human rights and told religious conservatives to get fucked, which they probably won't do because that sort of thing absolutely terrifies them. I heard the uh, excellent poll results while I was backstage at a stupidly lovely gig uh, in aid of a stupidly lovely charity, uh, the Hastings Furniture Service, and there was general rejoicing uh, before and then going on stage to a crowd who were supporting more people being lovely, and it was uh, it was all a bit emotional, I have to say. It was lovely. Um, I've noticed this is what's happened to me in recent years. Like, I don't know if you, you've heard this, but everyone said, oh, when you're a parent, you cry everything, which isn't true, because how can you get invested in any sort of emotional narrative when your little daughter keeps farting or crying at very choice moments and then deflating any investment that you might have had? But previous to parenting, and still now, I find myself being stone-cold OK with really sad things and sort of death stuff in films, and yet... I'm then on the verge of tears because I witnessed someone doing something mildly nice, like aiding someone across the road, or, you know, something falls off a shelf and they pick it back up and put it on again in a shop, or, you know, just not being a dick. I mean, is this what modern-day society has done to me? It's made me so expectant of worldly horrors and human ambivalence that I'm now a mess when something actually nice happens. Or am I just a psychopath? No, I'm, I'm not a psychopath. I score very low points on the hair psychopathy uh, checklist. But that is also what I would tell you if I was a manipulative pathological liar with superficial charm. Like a psychopath. Hmm, you'll never know. Um, thank you for listening to this already a bit weird, already a bit weird show. Um, and big thanks to the three of you who left lovely, lovely reviews on iTunes after the last week. Um, although Apple seems to have deleted some and then keeps making the most recent one disappear and reappear at regular intervals like lazy yet evil magicians. Um, so thank you to Michael, whose review is coming and going when it likes. Uh, Longscape Death and Outlaw Tron. And those are, God, those are good names. I'm glad people with such good online names uh, listen to this show. Well done, Outlaw Tron and Longscape Death. Um, I really... You guys need to get together and have some sort of evil metal band. Um, anyway, I would love it if more of you wanted to review the show, uh, even though iTunes may decide that your review isn't worth it, apparently. Uh, or maybe they fear this show is just becoming too popular and will ultimately just take them down uh, with some sort of snarky gags about how, oh, oh, Apple can avoid tax, but they can't avoid the fact that Tim Cook looks like your nan's friend Jane, the one who's always complaining about people smiling too loudly. Um, sorry. What I mean is, if you can review the show on iTunes or Stitcher who don't delete anything or Podbean who don't delete anything or Yelp I don't know if you can review on Yelp that would be amazing um, also if you can afford to donate to the show please spare even one dollar per month to the Patreon uh, which translates this week um, one dollar to 75p uh, which is the same price as a trowel in Wilkinson's and that's a very reasonable price for a trowel um, true but you don't need a trowel every month do you I mean how many bodies are you burying it uh, thinking about it trying to persuade you that I'm not a psychopath and then knowing the price of trowels probably isn't a good look. Um, anyway, please donate to the Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or do a one-off donation at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro and all of those links are on the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website too for clicking ease because you know clicking is so bloody hard otherwise. Not the clicking of your victim's bones though. I swear I'm not a psychopath. Um, I've got really I've got really low on the test like so 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 low. Um, if you don't have enough words left to do a review um, I don't know you might have used them all up by 
accident. Um, or you can't afford to donate, then please just spread the word about this show to get more people on board. Um, one very lovely tweeter last week told me that they had played the podcast to a pal and that person had uh, subscribed as a result. And that is amazing. And I prefer that to reviewing or donating, um, really, because it's all about getting more listeners. Oh, no, wait. Actually, I just prefer it to reviewing because I'm shallow and I need money. So, yeah, get more people involved. And then once I have enough of you listening, I can stick in loads of subliminal messages and you can be my sort of evil trowel army where we hunt down victims while saying awful gardening catchphrases like, you dig? Um, we won't we won't do that. Don't forget to check the website in general, partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, as I'm slowly building up transcripts and everything else on there. And uh, my wonderful other half, who's at Pro Wrestling on Twitter, um, she's already transcribed the interview from this week. So it will be up online by the time this reaches your ears. How exciting. It's like, um, like the internet is quick and stuff. Um, on this week's show, I am interviewing Connor Darcy from the Resolution Foundation on their Intergenerational Commission and Low Pay Britain reports. That sounds very fancy, and it is. Um, plus, uh, Brexit fallout returns because I can't do something nice for you, or I'd start welling up. And there's not much more to that because, um, A, it's quite a long interview this week, B, it's half term, and large amounts of you won't have time to listen to this as you'll be too busy working out what to do with children and how best to keep them away from weird men with trowels. But first, of course, before all of those things, here is these things. Nothing in this world can be certain except death and taxes. So said Benjamin Franklin, or possibly Christopher Bullock, or maybe even Edward Ward. I mean, who knows? They aren't death or taxes, so we'll probably never find out. Currently, in the UK, it seems certain that the only way to avoid the death of the NHS, and consequently many of its patients, is by raising taxes. No, don't be silly. Clamping down on the privatisation of the NHS by companies who never pay tax at all definitely won't help. Why would you say Why would you say such a silly thing? Uh, of course it wouldn't help because uh, stuff, just think of something else. Um, nor, of course, would increasing the spend on the NHS in comparison to GDP, which was happening until 2010, uh, when uh, afterwards it went into massive decline. Uh, you know, of course, of course, actually increasing the spending on the NHS wouldn't help you, you silly Billy. Who are you? Someone who understands basic numbers or something, you weirdo. No, the only way, as the Institute of Fiscal Studies recommends, is if tax rises give the NHS an extra 4% per year, a.k.a. £2,000 per household. And that does sound a lot, but it's £2,000 per household by 2033, so that's under the assumption that households will be richer then, and not that Theresa May will still be gripping onto power like an angry withered tick, as everything stagnates to the point of giving most areas in Britain the classification of a paved swamp. But the Treasury still thinks £2,000 per family by 2033 is too much, and they're angling for a 2% tax rise. And Health Secretary and animated pastry brush Jeremy Hunt thinks it should be 3%, as he says the public would back this proposal as long as they don't think the money is wasted. Except with Hunt as Health Secretary, a man who back in January tweeted Nipswich Hospital staff chart commending their use of technology, completely overlooking all the huge chunks of red that showed times where staffing was an issue, it does make me worried that we just pay this extra tax and then find out in a year's time that Jeremy used the money to buy more flats he'd forgotten about because he visited a ward and thought everyone was so happy they were playing lo-fi electronica, completely unaware that those were heart monitors. The biggest issue is that as part of a new funding plan announced by Theresa May in March, the government are currently arguing about how much the NHS needs and what it can afford to give them as the institution approaches its 70th birthday, which probably means that several of the Conservatives think it should be working by itself without support for at least another year. 
These arguments include looking at scrapping some of former Health Secretary and Droopy the Dog, Andrew Lanzi's 2012 reforms that cost a lot of money, caused a lot of hassle and basically no one liked, but they did them anyway, thus providing us with a glimpse at what the next six years would be like. But scrapping those reforms may not be enough for decent funding, and who knows if better ones would be put in place. And if the tax rise idea comes into play, then £2,000 per household in the NHS really isn't that much anyway, covering 16 A&E visits at the moment or 8 ambulance journeys. Hopefully not all for the same person or they'd be having one hell of a shitty year. Back in 2002, then-Chancellor and man who looks like when he speaks his face turns into stirred porridge, Gordon Brown, introduced a 1p in the pound national insurance hike specifically for NHS funding. But the Conservatives vowed to scrap it when they came in in 2010 because, you know, they're nice like that. And then last year, Chancellor and escaped shadow Philip Hammond had to U-turn on a proposed rise to national insurance due to public anger. So, will people go for this? Well, several polls say that two-thirds of the public are happy with tax rises if it means keeping the NHS in good health. So, who knows? All we know is death and taxes, and knowing the government, they'll definitely give up one for the other. Although, which way round is yet to be seen. Personally, I'm hoping for the death of Jeremy Hunt's career, meaning any rise in taxes doesn't go to some weird scheme involving him forgetting to push for more bed buying and staff pay increases, and instead doing something like giving homeopathy to pets for free, or insisting all junior doctors are actually children. I wouldn't put it past him. If you're young, chances are your main source of hope for the future is that a meteor hits the Earth or an alien invasion happens and that way, while you're fighting for survival, you won't really have to worry about rent, employment or paying your student debt back. Although, knowing the student loans company, they'd still manage to get a letter to you like right while you're in the midst of being fired at by lasers just to let you know that you've missed a few payments. The effects of current politics on young people have been the focus of this podcast quite a number of times, and that is partly to do with my inability to realise that I'm no longer a young person, even though I am a millennial, albeit only by a handful of days. I mean, really, just just a few days. I am so not young anymore. I can't be woke when I'm so, so tired all of the time. But mostly it's because young people in the UK are having a hard time with financial issues, no hopes of ever owning a home and a gig economy. A survey by the Prince's Trust found that today's young people are the unhappiest they've been in a decade, and that's not just because ten years ago being a goth stopped being as popular. You may have seen the headline a few weeks ago that said 25-year-olds should all get £10,000, and you may have thought, well, considering how that is the age group that appears to be hit hardest by austerity, that makes sense. Or you may have thought, really? How expensive is it to contour an avocado or smash a Snapchat? Or, like me, probably just thought, ah, but I'm well older than that and I really, really need £10,000. Well, firstly, if you thought the middle thing, you're an idiot. And secondly, it was an idea that was one small part of an intergenerational commission report by the Resolution Foundation that focused on how to bridge the gap between generations in the UK and address the concerns of not only the young, but older people too. Which is good, as I feel less left out now. The Resolution Foundation isn't, as you may incorrectly think, a group that focuses on how pixels should be on your computer screen, nor what you should pretend you might do after a New Year's Eve. They are, though, a non-partisan think tank that looks at living standards, and this week I spoke to Connor Darcy, a senior research and policy analyst at Resolution Foundation, all about the Intergenerational Commission report. What it is, what it means, will the government ever do anything about it, and exactly how much money can I get, because I really, I really am skint. We had a lovely long chat, so I hope you enjoy. Here's Connor. First thing uh, I want to ask is uh, probably quite an obvious question, but what does the Resolution Foundation do? Uh, and what what are you? Uh, you're a think tank, right? 
Yeah, so we are a think tank, but you know, legally we are a charity. So our charitable purpose as uh, legally defined is to do stuff to promote the interests of or kind of research into people on low to middle incomes. And that essentially boils down to people who, you know, we're not we're not like a, a poverty charity. There's a lot of charities who focus on, on those groups and they obviously deserve a lot of attention and support. We're kind of focusing on people who are the step above that. So, you know, what Theresa May is called just about managing, what you might call, there's been various names for them over the years, but it's kind of people who are on, you know, low to middle-ish incomes in work, not, you know, not um, in poverty, but not doing fantastic well either so we kind of cover a whole range of issues that they're that might affect them things that go on in employment or wages but also you know things that like benefits and how much they get from from the state and kind of longer term stuff as well like you know how is state spending going in the longer term what do what does the future look like in terms of their pension so a really broad range of stuff and we're very data based so you know some charities or, or think tanks tend to do more you know actually talking to, to, to real people we tend to do a, a layer away from that where we you know use data sets from the office for national statistics try and find out what's going on and then come up with policy ideas to that basically tries to make things a bit better for that group sure and then that's all presented to the government presumably well, yeah. So, I mean, kind of, we're um, we're totally independent, uh, and we try and get as you know any party and no party interested in, in in our stuff. So, we you know a lot of what we do is kind of focused at the media. So, we'll you know we're keen to get any report that we uh, publish out there, and if anyone wants to take on our ideas, that's great. And you know, obviously, we talk to the politicians of, of all of all stripes to try and get them to to implement our ideas. Sure. Yeah. And that's something I've always quite enjoyed uh, over the years when I've read Resolution Foundation. I've noticed that you've had uh, politicians from various different parties kind of backing or on your various panels and things, looking into things, which is always I find very reassuring as a member of the public <laughs> that it's, a, you know, that it works across politics and is more just uh, good advice, I think, uh, often. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about the uh, the recent in Intergenerational Commission report, um, which came out uh, by the time listeners will hear this, it'll be a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mean, the first question I kind of want to ask is what on earth an intergenerational contract is, because that's what the report kind of starts off with. Um, uh, what What is that? What does that mean? So it's basically the idea that different generations, you know, provide support to each other, uh, to different other dif- different generations at different stages of their lives. So, you know, it, I mean, the family uh, metaphor is probably the e- easiest way to understand it. You know, kids get, you know, support with their education, with their needs, when they're developing and growing. Younger people, you know, when they're having kids, they're, they're their grandparents or their parents care about them. They want to try and support them. And in old age, we, you know, we support our our, our grandparents if they're, you know, um, in need of social care or other kind of assistance as they get older. It's basically the idea that everyone pitches in, and at various stages in your life, you'll need support. At various stages in your life, you'll be you'll be helping others. And you know, it's it's something that you know, hasn't gone away. Families still want to help each other. Families are every day, you know, helping each other out, whether it's, you know, caring for each other or chipping in a bit of money if someone's trying to buy a house or just needs some money to help them get by or, you know, pay a deposit on a flat. So there's, you know, it's not like the intergenerational contract between families and individuals has gone away. But I think the reason that we started this and we started this commission about two years ago now, um, it was that there was lots of signs that for various, for, you know, older generations, there were elements of that kind of bargain, that kind of contract that weren't being held up. So for instance, you know, we'd seen younger people, their wages 
their wage growth has been, you know, really poor. Um, and the kind of quality of jobs that they've been getting into, you know, obviously zero hours contracts is, is rarely out of the news. Those kind of issues around whether the, the promise of kind of good quality work is, is, is there to the same ex- extent that it was for, you know, younger people 20, 30, 40 years ago was a really important question. Then kind of the next stage was, you know, people who are trying to buy their own homes, you know, it, it's the housing crisis doesn't need to be uh, restated. Uh, everyone, I think, knows about it. And it's, you know, it's not just the London issue, which sometimes uh, gets claimed. It's, it's, it's much broader spread than that. You know, it's, it's, it's really tough. And the, you know, the, uh, your typical 30-year-old millennial is about half as likely to own their own home as someone from the baby boomer generation, the kind of those who were born in the 20 years or so after the Second World War. So, you know, it's, we're just kind of seeing a lot of the assumptions that people had about each generation doing better than the last starting to look a bit shaky and uh, in some cases, you know, look like things have gone into reverse really. But, you know, that also includes people who are older. There's always worries around whether the NHS is being funded very well, whether it's providing the, the level of you know, care and, and service that, that it's needed that people expect. Uh, and, you know, it's most used by older people. And as the baby boomer generation now are, you know, moving into retirement, making sure that they can get the NHS that they deserve and expect and, and need. Uh, and, you know, the social care system, which is even more kind of chronically dogged by problems, making sure that that's, you know, doing the job that it is to make sure that people can you know, expect to be looked after and have dignity at all stages of their life, I think, is, is the kind of the, the issues that we're worried about in this. Do you feel like uh, it sort of feels to me that the age has now become another kind of uh, division in politics at the moment, kind of alongside all the the Brexit ones or class or location or previous ones that we've seen. Age now feels to be a major factor, mainly because, as you state, what young people need is quite drastically different to what they've needed before, um, you know, in terms of access to housing and education and stuff. Do you feel that that's kind of become more prevalent in recent years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's, I think it's really come to light, especially, you know, around the last election and how that seemed to be more split along age and party lines than perhaps in the past with with young people shifting more towards Labour and older people more towards the Tories. Um, But, you know, and I think if if we'd raised this as an issue, if we'd done this commission, say, 10, 15 years ago, it just would have been less relevant. You know, we hadn't, we were still pre-crisis, at least we were in a period where, Wages were doing pretty well. Employment rates were high. Everyone seemed to be doing okay. Benefit system was paying out. The housing, you know, house prices were really increasing, but so were wages. And we hadn't really seen that sharp decline in, in people being able to go on the housing ladder. So yeah, I think it's, you know, it's definitely risen up the the agenda for, for politicians, but just for, for individuals as well. Because I think, you know, the, some of the, the issues that I've mentioned are, are becoming more and more serious and more and more obvious that it's kind of hard to avoid this this age divide. Uh, do you think that part of that, because uh, something that always seems to strike me is that a lot of the uh, policies that have been put forward in the past are very limited in time scope. You know, they're not very future proof. They don't seem to see this as a long term problem. They're always kind of uh, cutting stamp duty a little bit, but they're not tackling kind of situations as a whole. Do you think there's a do you think that, you know, that the awareness of how much this is an issue is, is, is there uh, amongst kind of uh, politicians? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's definitely uh, increased and it's definitely uh, since the uh, 2017 election, I think it's definitely gone up the agenda. I mean, 
I've got, I've got some sympathy for them because these are massive issues and these aren't problems that have cropped up overnight. You know, these, some of the problems that we flagged, they started well before, you know, 2007, 2008, when the financial crisis started. These are, you know, kind of have the, the foundations of them have been put in place a long time ago. And it's hard to just come along and do one policy that's going to fix everything. It's going to take years and years of, you know, for, just to take housing as the example of building uh, a high number of homes to to really start to put a dent in things. And, you know, housing supply isn't the only thing. Just building a lot more homes won't fix things. They need to be in the right place. You need to have transport links that go to them. So there's a whole raft of issues. So I think that, that's why, you know, we kind of have the luxury as a, you know, not the government and having got together a group of, you know, the commission, we, I should say that the Intergenerational Commission is, is kind of like, hosted by the Resolution Foundation is how we sometimes describe it. Uh, but it's, it was a whole mix of people from, you know, unions, from business, from academia, from journalism. Um, so a whole range of, of people to, you know, we had the luxury to be able to step back and say, okay, here are some longer term problems. You might have missed them if you're involved in the day to day of politics, but we've seen bubbling up. And if you don't do something about them now and something, you know, in some cases quite drastic, uh, then these issues are only going to you know, worsen over time and you're just storing up even more problems for the future. So I think, you know, it's it's a good argument as well for for politicians to be able to make when you have this framing of here is a big issue. Here are problems that are facing different generations and here how here's how we can act in a kind of coherent way, roughly, to try and improve things for them, you know, now is the, the right time to be doing that. And um, one of the, I mean, the, sort of the one that made the headlines uh, from this report, one of the uh, the key recommendations, so 10 key recommendations, all of which I sort of read through and thought, all of these seem incredibly sensible. Um, but the, the one that kind of grabbed a lot of headlines was the report, uh, sorry, was the idea that every 25-year-old should be given 10 grand. And I should add, that's obviously not just to do willy-nilly with it, it was for very specific areas of, of housing and, and things. But, I mean... It, there's been a lot of criticism as to whether or not that would be feasible. Um, and, and I suppose my question was, is 10 grand enough? Because if we look at how expensive even affordable housing is or rent prices on the increase, um, you know, what, where did you get the figure of 10 grand? How does that work? Uh, so there's a little bit of, well, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely sparked a lot more debate than, than some of the, the kind of slightly uh, less eye-catching policies. The idea of a, you know, citizen's inheritance, as we call it, isn't, you know, it's not a brand new idea. We got people like Thomas Paine back in the back in the 18th, 19th century, coming up with these sorts of ideas of, of giving people a, a, a foothold in life to kind of build up something and letting them, you know, for some people have just recommended letting people use it however they want. And that's definitely how it got reported by some people. And I, I listened to a long conversation about people saying they'll spend it all on drugs. Uh, <laughs> oh, nice. But... Uh, it's we've got we've got suggestions for basically how you'd stop that. The, the suggestion that we had was you could spend it on um, towards a housing deposit uh, or towards your pension or towards education. So if you wanted to pay off some of your student debt or if you wanted to go and do a master's or if you wanted to, you know, if you're not on the university route, if you just wanted to go and do a, a different course, you could absolutely do that. Or if you wanted to start your own, your own business. Um, and I think the 10K was a little bit of uh, a finger in the air of, you know, what seems reasonable, what wouldn't absolutely break the, the, the bank uh, from, a, from the government's point of view, but would actually be meaningful. Because I think if you give people a small amount of money, the temptation to kind of 
fritter it away or not take it too seriously, even with even with all those protections in place, I think is a little bit um, higher. But we, you know, I think some of the pushback we've got is that it's too high and that it's just a huge amount of money. We reckon it would add up to around seven billion annually by the time um, uh, it's fully ruled out. But and I've heard other people say uh, it's it's not enough, and I think that's mainly been people in London who have the idea of buying their own home. Um, which you know is is fair, and we're not saying this is going to solve all of young people's problems or instantly make everyone convert everyone into a homeowner. Not by any means is that true, um, but I think it's you know when we look across how much you know the wealth, the financial you know the cash that people have, how much property wealth they have. When you look at people in their late twenties, this would more than double their wealth for for um, more than half of them. So it's it is a really big deal, and in lots of the country, this is a very big chunk of the housing deposit. It's you know could cover a lot of masters out there or other training courses that can really you know kickstart people's careers because that's one of the things that we're worried about that young people aren't climbing the career ladder and the pay ladder in the way that we would have expected. Or you know if you just stick it away uh, and put it towards your your pension you know some estimates depending on how you know obviously things grow it could end up being around 40 or 50 thousand pounds by the time you're retiring so i think you know it could make a a really big difference um it's not going to solve things by any means but you know when we look at the kind of difficult situation that a lot of people who came of age during the financial crisis have felt just not being able to get into decent quality work not being able to to save uh or to you know kind of get on it seems like a you know a, a meaningful but not absolutely revolutionary change that would give people a, an extra leg up in life basically and help them build up an asset personally i found it a very sensible uh, recommendation there's part of me that going damn why not for 30 year olds we really need it as well um but uh, well well <laughs> one, one thing we had is that it would be slowly rolled out so the first <laughs> people who would get it in 2020 would be people aged 34 to 35 because in some ways this is meant to be kind of like uh you know uh, compensation for having come to come into the world of work around the time of the financial crisis. So if you were I'm trying to think what age people would be, but if you're yeah in your early to mid thirties uh, in 2020, that means that you're probably you know leaving school or college or uni in, around 2008 when things were pretty tough. And people, when you you know, there's really good evidence to show that people who start off uh, in work. At a time when you know there's high unemployment or the economy is not doing very well, that leaves a real scarring effect, and people's careers never really tend to fully recover, or it takes a very very long time. So, we were trying to not exclude them either, but basically build in the policy slowly over time. And so, you depending on how old you are, you might be able to get some <laughs> if this policy came in. I think, sadly, judging by what you said, I might just miss it. Um, but uh, damn. Um, but no, I like to. I, I sort of. It felt to me as well like a slight uh, precursor because there's been a lot of conversation seen ac- across politics about the universal basic income idea um, and how while it would cost quite a lot at first uh, to kind of supply people with money, it would in time save money because you wouldn't have people uh, relying on other services quite so much um, that they would rely on if they were in poverty. So that felt to me like a sort of t- ten grand. Even you know what was the thing on Twitter the other day was that by thirty five you should have half your wage say in savings which is impossible mm. but I, I can see that yeah i know, I know. as a self-employed person that does make sense i've got my salary is zero so half of that is wage. yeah that makes sense um but yeah so take i saw, I saw another tweet today uh kind of taking the taking the mick out of that saying uh by age 30 you should have one save on every zelda game which just sounds more achievable <laughs> 
yeah that's pretty i think i've i think i've managed that one that's definitely <laughs> possible um i was gonna the, the other uh sort of some of the other key recommendations um which i found very interesting were they were looking at kind of property-based contributions towards uh, social care costs um and a progressive property tax um you know sort of based more on basically sort of an updated because council tax we know isn't really doesn't really work anymore and property values haven't been done i think since is it the early 90s i think they were last done um yeah. Is that, yeah, is that right? Yeah, and um, I I know that the housing the housing crisis obviously is in need of some really drastic changes, um, especially to help younger people. But how on earth do you persuade homeowners to kind of get on board with that when they've you know they've already got a home and they probably like it being valued quite highly? Yeah, I mean this is always the the challenge. Um, and I, I mean one of the points that we've made is I think some of the pushback we've got from this we've received a few emails and calls from, from older <laughs> people uh, is that you know, they feel like we're arguing in some way that they don't deserve to have their own home or they don't deserve to have, you know, the wealth that they've built up. And that's absolutely not what we're saying. You know, people across every generation have worked hard uh, to get what they want or, or what they needed and they've bought their own homes and saved and worked hard for it. So we're not we're not trying to take away from that whatsoever. But I think one of the things that we have found is that what, you know, what we saw and what no one could have predicted in the, you know, in the 90s and 2000s was this incredible increase in, in property wealth, like, you know, nothing we'd, we'd really seen before. And the vast, you know, for, for most homeowners, the increase in the value of their home, that wasn't because they were, you know, brilliantly decided, actually, I can foresee that this house is going to rise in value, you know, multiple times over the next few years, or that I'm going to totally revamp the house and do it up and it's going to be worth more. For for most people, they just benefited from that overall increase in house prices. Um, so a huge chunk of their of their of their property wealth is is basically luck. Um, so I think, you know, what we've argued is is kind of to keep things in, you know, to bunch things together. So what we're saying is that you could reshape. Um, so the, the 10K, for instance, is redesigning inheritance tax. So it's, mm. you know, recognizing that some of these property values have increased massively. Um, it's not always people's own genius that has has led to that. So reforming the way that the property is that the property and all forms of wealth would be inherited, um, shifting it from the person who's dying and passing things on to being paid by the person who's receiving it just seems a lot fair. And, you know, lots of people would be exempt, lower, lower income properties or lower value properties wouldn't necessarily come under it. But for some of the, you know, some of them, you know, the, the top um, most expensive properties, um, some of that then would be, would be taxed. And um, we'd put that towards the, the 10K. I think similarly on, on council tax, as you said, you know, it's, it's hugely out of date. No party would ever stand up and defend it. Um, and I think one of the main challenges is that, you know, it's not, it's, if you're renting, you end up paying council tax anyway, um, and it's it's definitely on you. Um, and there's there's calls for it, and there's different versions of wealth taxes in different countries. But I think what we're kind of envisaging of this as is more of a tax on people's actual properties and the, the, the owners themselves, rather than the the renters who don't really benefit from the the value of the house changing or anything. So shifting the kind of balance of that, make, and just making it a lot fairer, as you said, redoing the the property values which are so far out of date. So you know those things aren't aren't massively popular, um, and I think uh, in some ways, you know, some people will will be better off from from revaluations, uh, and we're really keen that you know the lowest income, lowest value homes don't get, uh, you know, aren't facing a big increase. But again, I think it's tying it back into the overall intergenerational contract. It's the idea that you can see why this is happening, that you're taking 
some of this uh, money that's coming in from a reformed version of council tax and putting it into, you know, making housing more affordable for for younger people, I think is is the kind of the, the way to sell it. But by no means will that be easy. And it's, you know, it's not the it's not the only solution to to a lot of these issues. Um, but I think, you know, I think some of the encouraging stuff we've seen, I think the attitudes data on this is, is really interesting. What we've seen is that you looked roughly 10 years ago, and I, asked, I think even less than 10 years ago, actually, asking people, how do you feel about more housing being built in your local area? And most people were opposed. And, you know, you can see, as you said, people, if you're a load of new houses get built in your area, the value of your house might drop. And even if you don't plan to sell your home, it's still nice to know that your house is worth a lot and you could cash in in some ways if you wanted to. But what we've seen recently, uh, and I think it's, again, the intergenerational stuff is what's underlying it, is that we've seen that actually the majority of people say, yes, I would support more homes being built in my area. Uh, because people, you know, people have kids, people have grandkids, they see them trying to save, working hard, uh, and not being able to, to buy their own home, not being able to get a decent career going. Um, and are supportive of you know some kind of action. Does that mean it'll be a really in- a easy policy to change? Absolutely not. And you know, as I said, lots of parties have supported, particularly reforming council tax over the years, and have just never really done it because it's you know some people will lose out and be very upset, and it's not a, a big political winner. But given you know the scale of these problems, and again, as you were saying, you know, having that longer term vision that you know politics and design of politics often kind of preclude sometimes, I think is, is really key because these problems, you know, they're not going to go away. Sure. Well, that's that's what's going to uh, ask as well is that, you know, we've not just got obvious, uh, obviously, we've got kind of issues with economy and things now and, and uh, obviously political issues with Brexit and whatever that may bring. But there's also issues like automation and the fact that the jobs market is, is changing. You know, the jobs that people are doing is changing because of technology. Um, and, and that's kind of seen, you know, we've seen that cause the gig economy and zero hours. So in a way, is this kind of uh, report, you know, future proofing that as well, kind of giving giving people uh, um, uh, a base to kind of get through those changes because we're in the transitional phase now and surely in 50 years people know how that works <laughs> but until then we're kind of seeing the the you know the, uh, the labor market as it were change yeah i mean i think we so we definitely have the labor market definitely has changed and if you look compared to 10 years ago got much more zero hours contracts we've got much more self-employed people in particular other forms like agency working lots of lots of these kind of atypical insecure forms of work have definitely increased um i think you know for the automation stuff it's it's really tough to say what happens i think our kind of default position is that history tends to be the best guide on these things and you can say that you know we're we're in a genuinely new world where the pace of AI and things is moving so quickly that it will just, you know, totally revolutionize the labor market. But I think from our perspective, we tend to think that robots are a good thing, that in general, that they've delivered better living standards for people. Things can be, you know, done more easily. Products can be made more cheaply. People tend to benefit overall as long as you're, you know, thinking about how do you create better jobs for people and how do you make sure that no one's falling through the, through the gap. So I think we're inclined to think, in my personal opinion is that, you know, you know, moving, worrying too much about that sort of stuff when it doesn't seem, obviously we should keep a close eye on it, but I think given how uh, obvious some of the problems that we've raised in this report are, which, you know, in some ways they're around the labor market, they're young people who've had a tough time, particularly since the financial crisis, how do they get on and how do they get better jobs, how do they get more secure positions, more normal contracts, that, that's really, that matters, but you know, I think in some ways it's it's slightly a fool's errand to 
to try and predict we need to do this policy because in 10, 15 years time, we think the labor market is going to be like this or X percent of people in this industry are, are not going to have a job anymore. I think change tends to be a bit more gradual. People tend to adapt. Obviously, there's, in the past, there's been some areas like you know, the history of deindustrialization and ex-mining towns and things like that still haven't recovered. And that should be a, a real warning to, to future policymakers that you can't just hope that this all goes okay. But I think on the labor market, that's one area where actually young people have in some ways done better. Unemployment rates have been so, you know, so much lower than we would have expected. We're at record high employment at the moment. Um, so I think in some ways that's where they're better off. It's, it's more just getting that kind of wage and career progression going for them that I think is, is the big concern in the short term, as well as, you know, keeping an eye on the longer time, on the longer term, making sure, you know, the issues around automation aren't, don't just spring up and surprise us, but the policy changes that I need are needed today, I think, are, are more kind of concrete on you know what we see. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And we'll be back with Connor in a minute. But first, that's right, it's back. It's... Brexit Fallout! Brexit Fallout! Brexit Fallout! 
Yet again, everything about nothing is happening. Well, nothing is actually happening despite everything going on. Yes, the path to Brexit is politics's Henry's cat. There is still no decision on what sort of customs partnership the UK should have with Europe after we leave, though rather than have two options that definitely won't work, we now only have one, after John Thompson, the chief executive of HM Revenue and Customs, has said the Max Fat Plan will cost the UK £20 billion a year. The Max Fat Plan, despite sounding like a kid show about a character who's hella excited about uh, feminists against censorship, it is actually all about using technology that no one has to do a job no one knows how to do. Where's this figure come from? Well, MaxFat would mean every individual business would need to fill in a customs declaration, which are £35 of consignment, and may include bloody loads of them, which would cost bloody loads. Yeah, check my maths talk. And that's what John Thompson's sum takes into account. All of that would be £20 billion a year with time spent, form costs, delivery costs, and that's not taking into account any delays or any other issues businesses may have, such as, you know, hiring me to do their maths and me just assuming everything will be bloody loads. This £20 billion figure has been disputed by other economists, but even then, the figures they've come to have still been, and I'll use that clever technical term again, bloody loads. Now, I say this non-option is even less of an option, but actually Brexiteers are still preferring it, because they'd much rather that money goes on containers instead of the NHS. I mean, that makes sense. If someone has an injury and you put them in the NHS, they have to be seen to. But if you put them in a container, chances are no one will see them again. Cost saved! But really, if Theresa May even thinks about putting MaxFact forward, all non-hardcore Brexiteers would just say, oh, that sounds terrible, we should probably stay in the customs union then. So that means May is likely to go for her plan, which no one likes, where the UK collects tariffs on behalf of the EU, even though no one really knows how that is done either, and the EU says it's rubbish and can't happen. Hooray! Meanwhile, all the name-calling and jibing has come back in place of any actual useful negotiating, as Brexit Secretary and a man composed entirely of bits of fluff that you find on your genitals after wearing new pants, David Davis, has accused the EU of point scoring. Which, if that is true, then it's clear this game makes even less sense than number wang. Brussels have threatened to shut British firms out of the £8.8 billion Galileo satnav system, making us even more directionless and disorientated than before. And they've ruled out the UK's part in the European arrest warrant extradition system. Davis said Britain came to Brussels with an unconditional offer on security because it believes in putting public safety first. Really? Is that right? I mean, then why are we letting a man who looks like he'd get lost in a corridor negotiate the biggest change in UK politics? That doesn't feel very safe to me, but more a national decision to set fire to our own homes. Philip Hammond said the UK will make their own satnav system, which is worrying that the Chancellor says there isn't enough money for most public services, but somehow we've now got a spare £10 billion so everyone can see exactly what shitty traffic they're about to drive into due to all the infrastructure cuts and crappy roads. Judging by how things are going, they'll probably just be sticking an old sky dish to a firework and hoping for the best. But the name-calling and snarky comments is also happening on the other side too, as EU negotiator Michel Barnier has said the UK has to stop playing hide-and-seek and needs to clarify its demands. I mean, with the whole Galileo scheme argument happening, that feels like a particularly mean dig. I mean, how on earth are we going to hide if they've got that bastard thing seeking from space? But he's not wrong. The UK really needs to speed things up. But instead of that happening, it's looking like Theresa May is going to have to ask for an extension to the transition. So it lasts until 2023. And I can't help but wonder if this is just going to be the case every few years, leaving us in a state of EU limbo. Limbi... 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 
Anyway, no one ever quite coming or going. You know, 2026. Oh, sorry, we've not got around to sorting it out yet. Can we stay a few more years, please? 2035. Oh, sorry, it all got lost under a big pile of things. Got such a big pile of things. Oh, we'll do it when we get back from bank holidays. Can we have a few more years? Yeah, thanks. 2238. Oh, sorry, our team got stuck in Mars because Boris insisted on flying. We should be back in a decade. Couple more years, yeah. On the plus side, if it does take long enough, everyone currently involved in Brexit will eventually die and forget what it was all about in the first place, and then if we never ever mention it again, maybe it'll just go away. Another bonus is never-ending nothing happening is that it's now pretty much impossible for us to have a no-deal scenario because no-one's prepared anything in case we do. It's amazing, isn't it? Our government's total incompetency means that we'll have to, by default, end up with some sort of deal. They remind me of an old flatmate who you'd asked to clean up so often but he never ever managed it and eventually after doing it for so so long we all just did it for him just to prevent us from living in Grimsville. I mean maybe that is the government's big plan and after a while the EU will just give up and hand us a booklet telling us what to do and then the Tories will boast about how their inefficiency saved Britain before running at the next election with the promise that they'll really not try to do anything for anyone and then still get in due to the apathy of voters. As for other parties' Brexit stances, uh, Scottish First Minister and quacker in a suit, Nicola Sturgeon, has been having meetings in Brussels, probably just because it's nice to have a chat with others about how the people you have to meet with are fucking idiots. Labour and grassroots organisation Momentum are both putting pressure on their leader, Jeremy Corbyn, to let members have a say on Brexit at the annual conference. That could be tricky for Labour, as 75% of members back a second referendum and 9 out of 10 want to stay in the single market, all of which oppose what the Labour leadership said, even though they haven't really ever made it clear what they really want to do about anything, and I'm starting to wonder if their overall plan is just to get in on this whole will-someone-else-just-do-it-for-us trick. I mean, yeah, how can they exactly know what to oppose when the government don't have any plans for anything? But also, if the opposition just said, hey, this is exactly what we want and we stand by it, and they all said that together, then a lot of the public would think, oh, thank fuck someone seems to know what they're doing. As it is, all we do know, thanks to Corbyn's visit to Belfast, is that Labour would take a neutral position in any border poll as long as the Good Friday Agreement is kept to the letter. Ah, a neutral position. Can you imagine ever going for dinner with any of these people? Oh, what do you want to eat, Jeremy? Oh, well, that dish looks good, but I won't pick it as I want to remain neutral on my choices, even though whatever we do, it must be something that's listed, but I won't say either way. Right, OK, uh, what about you, Teresa? Um, can I have five more minutes, uh, and then five more after that, and then another five? Ah! I mean, while I get angry at idiots who say the government should just get on with it because it makes me mostly want to send them a contract where in the small print it says to give me loads of money, I do have to say I now wish someone would just get on with something. Just anything, really. Even if after two long meetings they said, well, we haven't come up with any answers, but we did make a Lego version of The Hague. At least that's something actually constructive. And now, back to Connor. I mean, that's something you just mentioned there because it's interesting to hear that the unemployment is not as high as you would have expected. And I know that they've um, just the reports just come out saying unemployment overall has fallen by I think it's forty six thousand. Um, so what's caused those changes? Are we seeing? Um, I know that the uh, wages have finally risen. You know, are we are we seeing ourselves come out of a kind of period of difficulty, or have certain things come into play that uh, is ch- changing things? It's kind of it's it's a weird time in the labour market. So it's it's an interesting time for to me to be doing my job. Um, usually, what we'd expect is that as employment rises, as more and more people get into work, and as the number of people who are unemployed or 
inactive as they get cold, but that basically means not working and, and, and doing something else. So they might be students or they might be, you know, stay at home moms, something like that, or stay at home dads. Um, that basically you'd expect wages to rise because there's uh, more and more people in work. If you're an employer, you're going to have a harder time holding on to your staff if they can go somewhere else because, you know, every employer is desperate for people, but they can't find the people. So they're having to put up wages. Uh, that's the normal expectation. So when employment rates are quite high, you expect wages to be quite high as well. What we've seen for the last few years, which is weird, is employment rates have been really high, but wages haven't really responded. So they're, you know, they're they're kind of middling, basically, I would say. You know, wage rises are kind of in and around just under a little bit under 3% at the moment, um, which is okay. But compared to back, you know, in the mid 2000s, when again, we had high employment rates, actually not even as high as now, um, we were talking about pay rises of 4%, 4.5%. And, you know, it's that's a very big world apart. At the same time, we're seeing employers today saying, you know, they can't fill their vacancies, they can't get people to do the jobs. And that's, you know, in some, that's some skilled sectors. So that's where, you know, they need people with specific qualifications. But the vacancy rates in a lot of industries like retail or like hospitality, where maybe you're not looking for someone with a specific skill or a degree or anything um, advanced, then there's, you know, there's still issues there. So people are having a hard time finding people, but we're still not seeing that real response in wages increasing and the kind of so there's not really an easy explanation for why that is. People have said that you know productivity hasn't risen very much, and that firms have decided to hire more people rather than say invest in new technology. That's kind of one of the trade-offs. And when you know the cost of the cost of labor, the cost of hiring someone is is low, that kind of puts you off longer-term thinking again. Thinking, oh well, I'll buy this new machine or I'll I'll you know invest in this new software. We'll we'll just get someone else to do it the long way because it's cheap enough to hire them. So it's yeah, so there's this, there's a lot of changes going on. It's hard to say how much of this is the new normal and that we just end up in this position where there's, you know, people are less confident maybe after the recession because there is still the fear of zero hours contracts that people worry that if they fall out with their employer by asking for a pay rise, then that will endanger their 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 you know their earnings and their incomes and what they what they bring home. But it could just be something else around productivity, and we might see a, an uptick in that, even though the new productivity stats have been really bad, uh, which is kind of offsetting. So basically, it's a mixed-up time. It's hard to say what exactly is going to happen next. It's really good that employment rates are, are high. It's meant that a lot of families are, are better off than we were expecting, and we have seen in, in previous recessions. But the wage growth has just been really, really disappointing, and there's no sign of that coming to an end anytime soon. And we had the inflation spike post-referendum, um, which just meant that people were paying more for, for their everyday shop and for, you know, especially things coming from over, from overseas. So, you know, it's, 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 we're starting to get, we're starting to see pay rise again, but, you know, average weekly wages are still about 14 pounds below where they were before the crisis wow. in real terms. So there's a, there's, there's a long way to go basically before we get back to where we were. There's just been a huge amount of damage done, I think, over the last 10 years to, you know, to, to individuals' prospects, but just kind of to the labor market in general. It always takes a bit of time to recover. So some of the ideas that we've got, it kind of inadvertently address, address that. They try and get some of that um, upward pressure moving again and trying to get people you know, improving their skills, but also shifting a bit more power towards, towards workers to try and kickstart um, wages. 
That's really interesting. I can't believe you put, you're putting nuance into this, into politics. What's going on? There's none of that allowed, not on Twitter or anything. Um, I, it's one of the things that I, again, read, I won't give any sources, but was that uh, unemployment has fallen, but actually that's sort of considering self-employment as employment, uh, even if people might not be earning. It's people that are kind of registering themselves and, and people that are, are down a zero-hours contract. So is that now? does that now count as employment if people have uncertain work? Yeah, I mean, it always has, really, in terms of the the headline stats that we that we look at. There, you know, they're not they're not produced by the government of the day. They're produced by the Office for National Statistics, and they're not, you know, these aren't fiddled numbers. Um, but you can definitely see how people would would uh, highlight them as issues. And there's always the question of whether we're really capturing it, because when you look at, I think there's there's a there's a kind of a your lived experience, what you see and experience every day. And how that matches up with what the, the data is telling you. Um, and I think if you're living in a city and you're seeing a lot of Priuses with little Uber stickers flying past you every day, it feels like a huge number of people are uh, working in the gig economy. But actually, when you look at the stats, it hasn't really changed very much. When you look at the increase in who's become self-employed, there's definitely been an increase in taxi drivers. So we can kind of identify that. But there's not been a, a huge surge in people who'd be in what we call you know precarious self-employment where you'd be thinking, is this a real job or is it just kind of make work or you know, bogus self-employment where an employer has has only has told them I'll only hire you if you go on on a self-employed basis. So I think, you know, actually a lot of the increase has been in higher paid advertising, lawyers, education, marketing, a few uh, industries like that. Um, so I think a lot of people are in uh, insecure work. It's definitely higher than it was before the recession. We're talking 900,000 people on zero-hour contracts. We're talking uh, nearly 5 million people in self-employment, around 800,000 agency workers. So these are you know big chunks of the population. But I think for a lot of them, they're not doing terribly. It's it's not like absolutely everyone on a zero-hour contract hates it. When you, there's, you know, there's always doubts about these surveys, but people tend to say they're quite happy. I think the problems always come when you have a falling out with your employer or, or you know, your your hours get cut and then you don't know what to do. So what we recommended is that people who are on zero hours contracts, once you've been on them for about three months and you've had regular hours, then you should just get a contract that guarantees you that. Because you know there's some sympathy for employers who, you know, you don't know if you're say if you're a pub, it's a sunny day, you're going to need five extra staff to work in your beer garden. If it's absolutely uh, pouring down with rain, you probably won't need anyone. Um, and you you know it it it's one of the ways as well that we probably think that employment rate stayed a little bit higher post-crisis that because employers didn't have to say, I'm definitely going to hire you for 40 hours this week. They could say, well, actually, I can only really promise you, you know, a few hours every week. It's, it's one of the things that's probably helped. But given where we are now with the, you know, as we said, employment rates much higher, um, things looking a bit better. It, it's, I think it's time to, to shift some of the risk back onto employers. And I mean, that's, that's probably one of the themes of the, of the intergenerational work that so much of this, so much risk has been shifted onto young people in a way that it wasn't onto, you know, older generations, whether that's, you know, work in terms of the kind of the contracts they're getting, whether it's around housing, whether you're, you know, you're more reliant now on landlords who can just decide basically at a whim to evict you if they want to or have ridiculous um, rent increases or even longer term when it's when it's pensions, you know, when you've got more people now are paying into a pension through, you know, auto enrollment, these workplace pensions, which is a really good thing. But because without going too technical, these are defined contribution pensions, which are basically you save in, you invest them somewhere, 
and you get out whatever you've put in essentially plus whatever interest you've earned, a lot of the risk is on you. Basically, if the things that you invest in or if something goes wrong, then you're going to pay the, the price and your pension will be smaller than you might expect it. Whereas what was much more common back in the day was defined benefit pensions where you knew exactly what you were going to get out. So some people ended up with what are called final salary pensions, where actually you just keep getting every year the, the salary that you were on. Some people got less generous versions, but you know they knew exactly what they were going to get out. So there was less risk on them in retirement. And in some ways, you know, the, the same applies to the NHS or social care, where you know social care was seems like I think to some people more of a lottery these days of whether you get good quality social care, whether you'll have to go and rely on private provision or something like that. So I think in a lot of issues, there's there's been that shift of risk and. A lot of the things that we're suggesting, you know, um, getting rid of zero-hour contracts for people who've been on them for a few, for more than uh, three months, extra rights for self-employed people who, you know, might look more like the traditional employees of, of yesterday, but kind of giving them a little bit more support uh, would be a big bonus. In people in the rented sector, you know, we're trying to, you know, people still want to buy their own homes. We want to encourage that, but there will still be more people in, in the private rented sector. So introducing what are called indeterminate tenancies. So with no, you know, fixed cutoff points where you can stay um, and uh, with a housing tribunal. So if you do have a, a problem with a landlord, that can be, you know, weighed up and evaluated by someone. Limits on, you know, what rent increases can be kind of trying to keep them in pace with with inflation. And as I said, you know, improving the NHS and social care. So trying to shift some of that risk away from individuals and back a little bit more onto to government and um, and employers to, to try and, you know, uh, again, kind of future proof, but also just in here and now to protect people is, is kind of what we're calling for. Mm, I think that would make so many people's lives easier. And I think it would reduce anxiety. You know, there's a lot of, mm. I think, be a lot of uh, not just financial benefits, but kind of almost mental health benefits, I think, uh, to well, it as well, if people knew they weren't uh, going up against that much risk um, with their own money. So we've covered quite a lot of the recommendations that are in the uh, Intergenerational Commission report. But you have a report that uh, by the time this is released, it will be out. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know what's in it. Um, but you're low paying britain report can you tell me a bit about it and maybe um uh you know what what are your you know what any key recommendations that are contained within that yeah so obviously you know wage wages are a big issue and we've seen one of the big policies that's actually really helped younger people in recent years is the government's national living wage which is kind of the rebadged minimum wage for people aged 25 and over so um, we, we did this annual report looking at people who are low paid, seeing who's low paid, where they are, what their how the risk of being low paid has changed. And, you know, the national living wage has put a proper dent in this. Like we basically one in five people have been low paid. That's not really changed for like 20, 25 years until we got the national living wage, which came in in 2016. And we've started to see a fall. It's, you know, it's not revolutionary by any means. We're down from like 22 percent. A few years ago to around 18% now. We're expecting that to get down to like 16% by uh, or 15% by 2020. So we're definitely making progress. But that still means that we're going to end up with 4 million people in, in low pay, which isn't isn't great and still puts the UK kind of at the, the wrong end of the, the international league table. And I think sometimes in government, and again, it goes back to what's the easiest thing to do. In some ways, it's very easy for a government to say we're you know the existing government to say look we've brought in this policy this is doing a lot for low-paid people or even for labor to say well actually we need a much higher minimum wage and that's going to solve a lot of the problems um i think you know what we've argued is that a lot of what low-paid people find difficult or what causes them problems 
isn't just to do with the hourly rate. There's other things that are going on. So that goes back to some of the issues around zero hours contracts and you know, the terms and conditions and treatment they get. I think you know the point you were making around stress and how people feel about their job is is really important. And it's not it's something that we don't capture very well because there's not very good stats on it. There's things on well-being, but we don't really get good detailed breakdowns of how people in certain jobs or on certain wages do um, in terms of stress. But there's, there's three specific things that we've really pulled out. Um, and again, it overlaps a lot with the intergenerational stuff. So progression, uh, we've looked at, you know, only around one in six low paid people kind of escape low pay over a 10 year period. So there's just not wow. much movement out of low pay. So we've looked specifically at sales assistance, which are, you know, one of the, the biggest uh, low paying occupations There's something like 2 million people, I think, or one or 2 million people. Um and roughly half of them are still in the same job, uh, are still in the same occupation five years later, and only you know roughly around four percent are kind of moving into the what you think of as progression within retail, so into jobs like sales supervisor or you know a manager or a director in retail. So that retail, you know, the the shop floor to top floor idea isn't really holding up for lots of people. It's especially true for women. So that's kind of the, the second point. Just any way you kind of cut low pay women tend to do worse. They're less likely to escape low pay. They're less likely to move into better paying jobs. Female sales assistants are more likely to move into other low paying jobs or actually worse paying jobs like cleaners or, or kitchen assistants. Whereas men who are sales assistants are more likely to move into those kind of managerial positions. Um, and you know, a lot of that comes down to what employers do and how they offer progression. If you're you know, an employer, often you'll just think, I'll take on this person who's working full time and pr- promote them to a manager instead of thinking, well, actually, could we offer this on a flexible basis? Am I making good use of all the staff that I have? And the third thing that we've touched on, which I think is really interesting, but doesn't get as much attention, um, and especially you know, with the recent merger talks for Asda and Sainsbury's, is just the power that a few really big employers have within labor markets. So roughly 28% of all low-paid people uh, work for firms with, who have 5,000 employees or more, and about 16% of all low-paid people work for just 20 firms. So that's wow. like abs- absolutely massive power that a very small handful of firms have. Now, you can say in some ways that's really good, because if those firms improve pay or improve conditions, that have a massive impact and can really benefit people's lives. But on the other hand, if you're, you know, if you're in a town and there's only two big employers who are going to offer a job that you're qualified for, it makes things really tough because, you know, again, going back to if you're going to ask for a pay rise, if you're going to ask to be put onto a better quality contract, that really means that if you fall out with one of them, you're in trouble, essentially, if you if you can't get on with the other one, if, you, if there's not a lot of options available. So I think there's, is, you know, when we talk about, you know, things like the energy market or um, water, you've got all these like, or communications, you've got like Ofcom and Ofgem and all these different bodies who look into all these different markets and say, you know, are things working well for the consumers? But there's not really anything on the other hand to say, in the labor market where you've got really kind of what we call concentrated labor markets where there's a lot of workers employed by just a handful of employers is the you know is the market working well for them so i think you know we're not you know we're not the the kind of the worst case scenario and there's been some interesting stuff around this in in silicon valley where you know if you remember but like google and apple i think had a no poaching agreement basically Mm if apple couldn't just go and hire someone from google and google wouldn't do it to apple and it ended up basically keeping wages down because if you were threatening uh, to quit, if, unless you got a pay rise, the options of where else you could go really get narrowed down. So there's, you know, we're not saying we haven't got evidence that that's happening, especially in low paying sectors where the national living wage is doing a, a huge amount of work. 
But when you think about, you know, what does a, a healthy labor market look like? How do you get a bit more power back into the hands of typical typical people? It's probably not the ideal situation. So it's something that we're kind of really interested in and going to plan to do more on. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm certain quite a lot of people won't be aware of that at all. Um, mm. I definitely had no uh, no clue, especially, in, uh, again, as you say, I sort of think I'd be more aware of it in the US or expect it more than, than over here. Um, that's really fascinating. I look forward to reading that uh, when it's, well, by the time this is out, it will have been released. Um, so last question that I just want to ask you, which is what I ask every single guest, is obviously apart from yourself and the Resolution Foundation, are there any other campaigns or writers or uh, anyone else that you'd recommend that listeners follow um, you know, for solutions or interesting discussions on generational divides within current society, within uh, low-paying, you know, work sector, anything. What, what, what? Who do you look to for your information? Um, well, I'll, just because I've just had a meeting with them, the Living Wage Foundation do really fascinating stuff. So they are um, they do the Living Wage, which most people will have heard of, but it's the the voluntary Living Wage, which is. Uh, intended to not just, you know, give you absolute scraping by standard of living. It's meant to give you a kind of a minimum acceptable standard of living so that you can afford the basics and, and you know, participate in society. So they do that. But they also do a lot of really interesting stuff with employers thinking, well, how can, you know, living wage employers even go further and just be better, offer more things. So they look at progression. They look at what are the chances for training? How do you dole hours out so that you don't just have everyone on zero hours contracts, but you actually match what employees want to what employers can offer and try and match up hours. So I think they're really interesting. Um, there is a really interesting charity called TimeWise, who, again, on this progression issue, how do how do women in low pay get on? They try and encourage employers to, to think about how that works and how you offer better quality employment to, um, or how you offer more kind of higher paying jobs on a part-time or flexible basis. And they're doing some really interesting trials at the moment with some big employers. That's both in the low paying space. I guess, and, you know, around housing, there's, there's lots of really interesting people. I think one of our intergenerational commissioners was um, Sarah O'Connor, who is a journalist at the Financial Times. And she writes some really fascinating stuff. So she'll, she'll do a lot on the future of work um, and uh, how automation is changing things. She's done some really fascinating stuff um, with tracking devices, uh, which I'd recommend looking up. But she's also done some really kind of gripping pieces just on what it's, you know, she does a really good job of combining data with what happens uh, to people's lives. So she did a really excellent piece on Blackpool, which is kind of combining stats on, you know, employment and um, uh, unhappiness and uh, I think other things like early deaths uh, in Blackpool, which is going and interviewing people, talking to people who are trying to make things better in Blackpool and, and um, charities that are there, as well as people who are kind of, you know, on the on the sharp end of all this and, and, and not doing very well. And it kind of brings together the, the kind of the, the colder data stuff that we do with a, a more human touch. So um, that's a few. Thank you to Connor for that really, really interesting chat. Uh, Connor is on Twitter at Connor T. Darcy, uh, spelt as it sounds. And the Resolution Foundation can be found at resolutionfoundation.org or on Twitter at ResFoundation, uh, where you can find links to both reports that were discussed. I found both of them hugely interesting. And while it's very likely that you'll often think they go too far or don't go far enough, because that's what everyone does, um, I found it a relief to read thoroughly thought through ideas about what could be done and should be done to uh, some extent. You know, rather than, you know, politicians who keep making their entire policy well the other party didn't have a good policy so ours would be better without ever saying what it is um 
And of course, as mentioned by Connor, uh, the Living Wage Foundation, I interviewed Emily Kenway from there uh, back in episode 11, which is years ago, um, if you fancy a listen to that. And Emily doesn't even work there anymore. That's how long ago. Time, eh? What a shit. Um, also, big thank you to Fern for putting me in contact with Connor. That was hugely appreciated. Um, I've got a fair few guests lined up at the moment, but that doesn't mean I'm not interested to hear your recommendations for who I should interview and what subjects to interview people about. I mean, I'm not interested, but it doesn't. That, that's not why. Um, um, no, I'm only joking. Please do drop me a line if you've got anybody to suggest um, at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or the Facebook group or the Twitter at Parpolbro or the contact form on the website, which basically goes to the same email I just mentioned, but you have to type even less things, so it kind of depends on how lazy your fingers are. Um, or you could deliver it direct to me by an antique horse-drawn mail carriage, but horses are shit at drawing, so I'll probably just point out the window and laugh at you sitting amongst weird hoof squiggles instead. As as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you. No, thank you for allowing me full access to your eardrums once again. Um, and if you can, please do review, donate, or just tell other people you like about the show, because then they will listen and they'll like that, then they'll like you more, and then you'll have to say that you don't actually like them very much or they hang out with you too often and they're not actually listening to the podcast, uh, rendering this entire task invalid. Stick to the guidelines, buddy, OK? Don't forget to check out the website of things as well at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk. Thank you to Acast for clenching this show between its audio uh, fists and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all the beats and bips and bops and boom baps. This will be back next week and I'll be looking at why Philip Hammond has catapulted himself into space with a goldfish bowl on his head and is insisting on tweeting photos of Britain's roads from orbit with a fuck Galileo hashtag. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Bojo Airlines, who invite you on board their overinflated Skylumps to enjoy a number of things we'll promise but not actually deliver on arrival. Our staff are specially trained to only really look out for themselves, and if you need help filling in a visa for your arrival, they'll make sure to get it all wrong so you end up unfairly in prison for years. Boris Airlines, with seats to fit any ego. Some people just know how to fly. Not us, but we'll tell you we do, because how much harm could that cause?